That was one minute. And sometimes one minute can feel like a short time. Sometimes one minute can feel like a long time. How many of you did that last minute feel like a long time? Okay, some of you. How many of you, you started to feel a little anxious, a little jumpy, a little bit impatient? Anybody? All right. Now I know who my audience is. I'm talking to all of you this morning who raised up your hands and all of you who didn't raise up your hands too because we all struggle with patience at times, don't we? Um, As best as I can tell, impatience is usually an issue of control. When something isn't going the way that we expect it or we plan it, when we realize that we are not in control, we want to do everything that we can to get back into control and we become anxious about it and that feeling shows up as impatience. So we hit traffic during rush hour and the cars ahead of us are not going as fast as we want them to go and what we feel in that moment is impatience, we're not in control. When we have a vacation that's coming up a month from now and we can't wait for it to be here and we just want it to be now, we're not in control of that timing and we become impatient. When Domino's Pizza's online ordering system is down and we have to order by phone, we become very, very impatient. We're impatient with time. We're impatient with people. There are all kinds of things that we become impatient with in life. When things are not going the way that I expect and I can plan for, I become impatient. And so what patience is, is it's letting go of control. Patience is letting go of control. Well, here's the big idea we're going to think about this morning. And that is this, that the more that we see that God is in control, that God is at work, that he's got a plan, that there's a good plan, and that God is going to carry out that plan, the less, I believe, we feel that we need to grab the reins and take control, and the more patient we become. We're going to look at one very short verse in the book of Philippians this morning. Mary Kay read uh, it for us as she read that introductory section to the book, uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. And before we get there, I want to give you just a little bit of understanding on the book of Philippians, what it's all about. Uh, The book of Philippians was written to the church in Philippi by the Apostle Paul, and it's the very first church that he planted in Europe. And and sometime later, after he planted that church and, and set up some leaders and left, Paul uh, was imprisoned in Rome, and when the Philippians heard about this, they got very upset about it, and so they took up a collection of money, and they sent that money with a man whose name was Epaphroditus, and he was uh, probably a pastor at the church or an elder or something, and he carried that gift to Paul to Rome in prison just to try to make his stay more comfortable so that he'd have some money to purchase what he needed. And this letter, the book of Philippians, is most likely Paul's thank you note to the church. It's the greatest thank you note in the history of the world, and it is an exceptionally positive letter. The themes of the letter are encouragement and joy, and he begins, as we read, in such a warm way. These are his old friends that he's talking to who have just done something very sacrificial and and kind for him. And then we, we hit probably one of the most encouraging little statements 
in all of the New Testament. There's many that are very encouraging, but this is certainly one of them. And we find that in Philippians 1, verse 6. And again, Paul writes, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's the little section we're going to think about this morning. And I think we're going to break that idea down into three smaller ideas to get our arms around this verse a little bit better. So we're going to think about three things. The first is this, God's at work. Paul tells them God is at work. The second thing he tells them is that God's work is a good work. And the third thing that he tells them is that God's work will not fail. He says, I want you to trust that God is at work, that God's work is good, and that God's work cannot fail. And and I really do believe that if we can grab a hold of these things, it will impact our patience in really significant ways. So we'll think through this a little bit. One of the first reasons that we can be patient is because God is at work. Now, sometimes it's really hard to see and believe and and, um, you know, think that God is at work in the world. We turn on the TV or we read the news on the Internet, and it seems like the world is spiraling out of control more and more every day. I wake up every morning. One of the first things I do is I, I look at the news on my phone, and I always wonder what's the big bad thing that's going to have happened today in the world that I missed overnight while I was sleeping. Uh, Looking at the news just in the last couple of days, uh, there was another suicide bombing where I think 135 people were killed. Witnesses described the scene as being like a river of blood. Uh, In Louisiana, at an airport, a man was shot because he was wielding a machete trying to hack people up just yesterday or the day before, I think this was. There was an apartment fire in Brooklyn that took out most of a family. I, I think it was five or seven children died in this fire. And we read things like this, and we hear things like this, and and then we hear that God is at work in the world, and we think, I I don't really see that. It feels more like God has abandoned the world than that he's at work in the world. And if God is really at work in the world, then why do things look the way that they do? If God's at work in the world, then what on earth is he doing? Well, for now... God's work in the world does not primarily involve stopping terrorist groups or crazy men with machetes in airports or fires, right? Now, he may be doing that. In fact, he may very well. We we don't know, but um, that is not his primary work. That will become someday his primary work. God will make right all things. But for now, that is not the primary work of God in the world. The primary work of God in the world is salvation. It's the main thing that God is doing right now. Uh, Salvation means deliverance from danger or from suffering. So God's main work in the world right now is rescuing people from the consequences of sin and death. The Bible gives this image that he pulls people up from the pit and he puts them onto solid ground and The Bible describes that as God's work, his chief work in the world right now, and that God is the only one who can accomplish it. 
Right? There's no person who's up to the task. There's no organization that's up to the task. It's a work that only God can start and only God can see through. And this passage reminds us, uh, first of all, that it's a work that he starts. Now, this passage tells us that God begins salvation in a, per- in a person's life. We read other, other places in the New Testament that God is the author of our faith. We're like a blank page that he begins the script for. The Bible teaches that it is God who stirs within people's minds to enable them to see that they are lost and and ruined without him. Ephesians would say that that they're dead in their sins. It's only God who can make forgiveness possible, and, and he did this through the death and resurrection of his beloved son, Jesus. And it's God who opens up our hearts so that we might believe in what Jesus has done and trust Jesus for the forgiveness of sin. That's a work that God begins, and it's the work that God is doing in the world. Salvation is God's primary work in this world, but some people might still say, well, where's the evidence? I don't see it. It's not obvious to me. But do you know where the primary evidence of that work in the world is found? It's found in God's people. The primary evidence that God is at work in the world is his people. It's the church, meaning the collection of all of God's people through all of history, all around the world. Now, unfortunately, we live in a day and age where people uh, think of the church based on what they see on TV, right? Again, in the news this last week, there was a um, tele-evangelist who wanted to raise uh, $60 million so that he could buy a really expensive luxury jet, okay? And so he asked his people to do that. I was thinking out of that, we should at least raise some money and and buy Tom a hang glider at some point or (laughs) something like that, right? People see this guy, they think, well, yeah, that's the church, right? Well, this person, I did a little bit of research on him. He's probably not a part of the church. This man is... Most likely, uh, well, he certainly is in this area, but he's a, he's a false teacher. He does not represent the church. If you want to understand the real church, what you would do is not look at CNN, but what you would do is you would go and visit the people who make up the church, and you would hear the stories of the way that God has transformed their lives, the way that he's helping them and encouraging them and transforming them, changing their marriages, changing the ways that they they relate with their kids, the the impact that they have on the community, like we heard a little bit about this morning. If you are in this room, and I were to say, listen, if God has transformed your life, raise your hand. If I said, where would you be? Okay, you are doing that, right? Do it again. Okay, look around. This is the evidence of God's work in the world. It's the church. It's God's people. And when you listen to the stories of God's people, you have an opportunity to see his work, his primary work. Now, sometimes a person could say, well, wait, why isn't it more obvious, though, right? I mean, if this is God, shouldn't shouldn't we see it more clearly than we do? And there really is an amazing answer to that question, I think. I think the reason that we don't see God's work as obviously as we could is, is for this reason. Because God chooses to use us as his messengers. 
The reason that God's work is not more obvious and more perfect and more magnificently uh, apparent to us is because there's two things that the church, that the people of God are simultaneously. First of all, we are his chief work. But second of all, we are also his workers, right? God doesn't just do his work in us. He also uses us as his workers, and he invites us to be his ambassadors and his messengers and his stewards. We are to declare the work of God. And this is an amazing picture of God's patience, okay? Because, think about this, God could do it all by himself, right? God could do it all by himself, but instead he chooses us uh, this reminds me of a story that I read recently that I believe is a true story. It happened during World War II, and it's, um, it's, a, it's a pretty pretty cool story. I think you'll, you'll like it. Uh, aboard a United States submarine in enemy waters of the Pacific, a sailor was stricken with acute appendicitis. The nearest surgeon was thousands of miles away. Pharmacist mate Weller Lipes watched the seaman's temperature rise to 106 degrees. His only hope was an operation. I have watched doctors do it. I think I could. What do you say? The sailor consented. In the wardroom, about the size of a Pullman drawing room, the patient was stretched out on a table beneath the floodlight. The mate and assisting officers, dressed in reversed pajama tops, masked their faces with gauze. The crew stood by the diving planes to keep the ship steady. The cook boiled water for sterilization. A tea strainer served as an antiseptic cone. A broken-handled scalpel was the operating instrument. Alcohol drained from the torpedoes was the antiseptic. Bent tablespoons served to keep the muscles open. After cutting through the layers of muscle, the mate took 20 minutes to find the appendix. Two hours and a half later, the last stitch was sewed just as the last drop of ether gave out. Thirteen days later, the patient was back to work. Okay? Isn't that amazing? You know, the whole thing would have gone a lot better and a lot quicker and been a lot more effective if there had been a surgeon on board. But you know what? The crew got the job done, right? This is so much like the church, okay? God could blink his eye and he could change everything about this world in an instant, but he's chosen his people to be his means for changing the world. He's giving broken people like us the chance to be his messengers and ambassadors. And though we are so clumsy about it at times, though we are prone to dropping the ball, though we tend to be slow and inefficient and certainly far from perfect, though we aren't nearly as effective as we could be in doing our work, yet the Bible says God delights in his people. And God using his people to accomplish his work through the church is his plan A for this world. He wants us to be the ones who herald his good news. And it's probably a lot clunkier this way. God could probably get the job done a lot better if he wasn't using us. But God tells us that he will use the church and that the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. 
So I think what's really important as we look at the world is not to misunderstand God's patience for inaction on his part somehow. God is at work in the world, the Bible says. His people are evidence of that. But he works patiently so that we can get to be a part of his work in the world. Kind of an amazing thing, isn't it? I mean, this reflects the incredible patience of God that he would use us. Well, he's not only patient in working in the world and using us to do that, but um, the second thing I want to think about is this, is that he's really patient in us too. God is so patient with his people. But we also should not confuse that with the idea that God is not at work in his people. How many of you ever feel like, man, I am a work in progress? Anybody think that? All right, me too. That's, that's, you know what the reason that is? Is it's because we are, okay? It's because we all are. Uh, God's people, this passage tells us, is we are a work in progress. When Paul writes the completion of God's work, that's the, the future. He's not pointing to anyone in particular at that church who's already finished. None of us in this life have arrived. We are all flawed and imperfect, and the Bible makes that really clear. But it also makes it clear that work is in progress. Right? We are a work in progress, but work is in progress. God is doing a good work in his people. And the biblical word for God's work in us is a word that you might have heard, maybe not, but it's, it's the word sanctification. Okay, God is in the process of shaping us and molding us to be more like him, to sanctify us, to, to set us apart, to make us different, to make us more like him. He's making us ready for our heavenly home. He's training us for when we get there. He's growing us in maturity and making us more like Christ. And you'll see this word and this concept described all throughout the, the New Testament. Let me just give you three examples. Uh, in the book of Ephesians, Paul writes, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's even in the Old Testament, too. Isaiah says, We are the clay, and you are the potter. We are the work of your hands. And here's what's frustrating about this for a lot of Christians, myself included. This work can sometimes seem so slow. Okay, And in, in those cases when it just feels like we are constantly a work in process, this can become easily discouraging. Okay, Some Christians I've met are very frustrated with themselves and they feel like they are a constant failure and that they are always a disappointment to God and, and they feel very defeated. And part of that is because sanctification is a process that takes some time. In fact, it's a process that takes a, a lifetime for a person. Now, I wanted to try to bring this whole process to life a little bit with kind of an extended illustration and uh, so I want you to use your imagination with me a bit this morning. I want you to imagine a young man, and he's just a typical American, you know, normal family. Nothing really stands out about him or, or where he's from. But the, the truth that nobody knows is that as he 
grew up, his father was a closet alcoholic. And his mother coped with that by living vicariously through soap operas. And so his relationship with his parents was very distant at best. Uh, he was anxious to grow up and to escape the house, and he does that. He goes away to college, and he joined a fraternity that was really a, a sort of rough-around-the-edges kind of place. And uh, during that time, he slept with too many women to count. And in fact, a, a lot of them he can't remember because um, his behavior was fueled by alcohol at the time and occasional recreational drugs and and after he graduates, uh, not much in his life really changes. He gets a well-paying job, and uh, he kind of uses his weekends to blow off some steam. Until one day, he receives a phone call, and it's from his older sister, whom he's had virtually no relationship with for years. And she tells him on the phone that she has terminal cancer. And he's shocked by this, and he goes to visit her at the hospital, which isn't too far away, and, and he begins to visit her weekly, and then more regularly than that even. And to his surprise, he finds that a very close relationship forms with him and his sister. And, and part of the reason that is is that his sister is a mystery to him. She is dying with such incredible dignity, and he cannot understand that. And Later, she, he asks her about it, and his sister tells him that she is a Christian. And the man goes home that day, and he starts to feel something stirring within himself that he's never experienced before. He starts to feel more of an interest in God. His life is beginning to feel empty, and he begins to sense within himself that something is missing. And to his own surprise, he, he talks to his sister about it, and, and she begins to explain how much God loves him. She talks a little bit about what sin is and, and the devastation that that causes in the world and in human life. And she doesn't stop there. She talks about grace, and she talks about how God sent his son to be a solution to sin. But he can't quite grasp it. And he feels he's on the edge of something, but he just can't get there. And, and his sister dies, and he's devastated. And he goes to her funeral. And at the funeral, the man who is speaking shares the gospel. And he believes. In that moment, he understands, and he believes. And he feels, for the first time in his life, accepted by God. He feels forgiven of everything that he's done. And, and into his heart floods a sense of hope and purpose and thankfulness to God. And for the first time, this is the biggest shock to him of all, for the first time, he actually wants to live a righteous life. He actually wants to please God. There's something within him that, that wants to change, and, and he, he ends up getting involved in a church uh, right locally in the area. But even though he wants to please God, he finds that it is still a struggle by now, his use of alcohol has become a crutch to him, and he begins to slowly address that. He, he also starts to learn about the Christian ethic of sexuality, and, and not, not just that he ought to be pure, but why he should and what that means. And 
and why that will help him so much in life. And, and that starts to impact his actions and his thought life and the way that he treats women. And slowly this man begins to change. But it's two steps forward and it's one step back. And for him, it's a fight. I mean, this is a battle. Well, he marries a girl that he meets at this church, and he finds that early on in his marriage, there are all kinds of habits and patterns that he's built up that need to be broken, and the process is slow. He and his wife barely make it through the first three years of marriage, and at one point for a whole month, she has to go and and live with someone else just to get away from him for a little while, but the marriage survives. And out of that experience, he begins to read the Bible regularly for the very first time, and it's overwhelming to him at first, but he starts to learn slowly. And he and his wife have a couple of children, and when they're young, he he realizes that he has a real issue with anger. He never saw this before until he started dealing with his children, and, and it really bothers him, and he starts to really work on that and pray about that, and at one he needs to go and see a counselor and, and think about his anger issues. And, and he sees some progress in that, but as soon as he finishes up working on this anger issue, he realizes that he's kind of passive as a dad and that there's a lot more that goes into being a father than, than what he's doing. He feels very inadequate. At one point in the years, he um, deals with some real fear and anxiety because he thinks he's going to lose his job. A little while later, after he gets through that, he gets a promotion and he struggles with all the temptations that come with money and success. He becomes a community group leader at his church, but he doesn't feel like he's real effective. He's helped some people, he knows, but, but not enough. And it feels like, like the, the time that he has to invest in people's lives is minimal at best. And Time goes on. He faces the death of his parents, the seasons of marriage, a real scare with his health for a year or so. And and far too soon, his children move out of the house and he sees a look of excitement on their face as they head off to college. But to him, it's bittersweet. He struggles with that. He misses them. And the old seductions of alcohol and sex still seem to hound him at times especially when he's tired. And lately, he is really tired. One day, the man is 67 years old, and he wakes up, he gets out of bed, he pours himself a mug of coffee, and he sits down in front of a bay window with his Bible, and he looks outside, and it is cold outside. And he feels cold inside, too. And the man is very discouraged. And he thinks to himself, I am tired of this. I am tired of struggling. He says, I am tired of feeling like I am always wrestling with the world. And even more than that, I'm always wrestling with myself. Why can't I get it together? I thought I would be a lot further along than this. But you know, you and I, see something that this man does not. It's still fresh for us because I just said it, but for him, it's eroded over years and years and years, and that is this, that God rescued him when he was a frat boy in college, and that the person 
that he has become at age 67 is totally unrecognizable from where he started. I mean, you and I think about a man like that, and we realize that guy is a living testimony of the grace of God. That guy is God's workmanship. It's obvious to us, but we see the big picture, right? It's not always so clear in the humdrum uh, routine of everyday life. And the thing I'm trying to get across is this, is, is that that's usually how sanctification works. Sanctification is sometimes so slow that it is unidentifiable to the person who is being sanctified, but sometimes other people see it, and certainly God does. You know, one of the toughest things I I really believe in life for us to measure is our own spiritual progress. It's one of the toughest things to see and understand. Uh, C.S. Lewis said something so good about that. He said, no man knows how bad he is until he's tried very hard to be good. Okay? What he means by that is that when you try to live a a righteous life, you will see all the more clearly how unrighteous you are. That the further you come the more you will realize how far it is that you've got to go. And just when you think that you're finally getting someplace, like an onion, you will find another layer of your own shortcoming underneath. And like it or not, this is people. This is the human heart. And a person cannot grow spiritually without catching sight of this. Until we die, we will always be a work in progress. And there's a part of us that just really needs to accept that. Otherwise, we will become incredibly discouraged in the Christian life. So for those of you who are discouraged this morning that you aren't yet who you want to be, I hope you really take heart. God isn't done with you yet. And again, it's just another example of his gracious, patient, long-suffering grace. God wants us to lean into his grace, to treasure it, to depend on it like oxygen, to trust that his work in us, even if we don't see it, is good. God is making people into diamonds, right? And a diamond takes some time and some pressure to form. But he who began a good work in you will complete it on the day of Jesus. Just because God's work in our life isn't obvious to us, it doesn't mean it's not happening. Okay? Now, there are some people probably who in this room are not seeing God's work much in their life, and there's lots of reasons that this could be. For some, it could be that God is a very low priority in your life, and so there's not really much room that you've given him to do much work. God doesn't always barge in to sanctify us, right? My encouragement to you would be that as you become more serious about God working in your life, God will become more serious about working in your life, right? That's a great opportunity to invite him in to begin to do that. But there are other people in the room who um, you need to really be a lot more patient with your growth. I really believe that. You need to trust that God is at work and keep striving, keep... uh, putting your life in his hands, keep seeking to be obedient, but do that with a sense of patience. Don't don't believe that that you are always a constant disappointment to God, right? 
The fact that you're a work in progress is no surprise to God. He's not going to give up on you. God is committed to you. He's your father. And and one day, he promises that work will be finished, that he will complete his work. He won't stop. And that brings us to the last point of this passage, and that is that we can be patient because God's work will not fail, right? Paul says, I'm sure of this, that God will complete his work in us. In 1996, Billy Graham received a Congressional Medal of Honor. It was a gold medal, and he received it at a ceremony in the Capitol Rotunda in Washington, D.C. And the Capitol Rotunda is decorated with all kinds of pictures and images of our country's forefathers. And so the story is told that Billy Graham stood up to give a speech as he uh, received this medal in front of vice presidents and senators and congressmen. And what he said in that speech in the most plain words was this. He started out this way. You're all going to die. Okay, Only Billy Graham could probably start a speech to these people like that. He said, you're all going to die. Just look around the room. The one thing that can be said about all these men is that they're all dead. You're all going to die. Now, the same thing that he said to them can be said to us. But you know what? For the children of God, that should not scare us. It should inspire us. That should be one of the most inspiring statements that we can hear. And here's why. Because this passage tells us that what God starts, he finishes. Okay? God is not like us. He doesn't have basements and garages that are filled with a bunch of half-done projects. Okay? God does not leave any loose ends. What he commits to, he carries out. God is not going to pull a person from the pit and then accidentally let them slip back in. I love what one writer wrote. They said, we must not picture God looking over the redeemed multitude in eternity and saying, we did fairly well. 80% of the saved finally made it home. The Bible is so clear. Believers, you won't be lost. There's nothing that can happen for you to be lost Thanks to God sending his own son for us. Salvation is a certain work. One day, though you feel like a work in progress now, like you feel so far from perfect now, one day you will be flawless. We will be like Jesus. The Bible teaches us again and again that the best is yet to come. God will finish his work. Uh, Let me just uh, end with this. I I remember a few years ago reading a book that was talking about patience, and the book said that the best way to grow in your patience is to put yourself in situations that test your patience. And it gave one illustration of, you know, if you're at the grocery store and you have a choice of lines, choose the longest line, you know, or take the long way home, stuff like that. So I was in the grocery store, I happened to be reading the book, and I thought, all right, I'm going to do this. It was a busy day in the grocery store, and so I picked the the very longest line, and I did it. I I did what this book says, but I'm never going to do that again. (laughs) And there's one reason, really, basically, and that was it took way too long, you know, to get through that line. But but here's the thing. When it comes to patience, we all want to be more patient. 
just forcing herself to try to be more patient is usually a very ineffective way to try to become patient. And the reason is, is that patience is an overflow of a person's heart, right? Patience is an attitude. It's a, it's a condition that we are on the inside. In fact, all of these fruits of the Spirit are exactly that. They're not something that we pound away at working towards. They're something that grow naturally like fruit in our lives as we grow closer to Christ. Patience is a heart condition. Sometimes in life we feel so out of control. Sometimes in life we are so impatient. But the more that we see that God is in control, the more we recognize and rest in the fact that God is at work, God has a plan, God's work is a good work, and God's plan is a good plan, and God will accomplish all of his purposes in life, the less we need to grab the reins, the more comfortable we feel being out of control as we rest in the fact that he is in control. As Dan said this morning, we can be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. I think that's part of the encouragement of Philippians 1, verse 6. Let's pray. Father, when we think about our own impatience and and how easily life not going the way that we want or a person not responding the way that we hope can just set us off. We're struck by how incredibly patient you are with us and with this world, and we thank you for that. We thank you for your grace and your mercy and your kindness. We thank you that we get to be works in progress and that you, um, as a father does to a young child, you, you bring us along, you Help us to mature. And we pray that you would help us to enjoy that process, to be patient as we wait for you to work and as we seek you and and long for you. We pray that you would produce in us a deep confidence that your way is always better than our way and that you are at work in this world. Help us rest in that today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.